Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. If you guys looked at your bulletin, today we are talking about a really specific question. Can a woman be a pastor? Last week, I referenced this topic sort of casually, and then as I thought back over last week, I was like, you know what? This is a perfect like, time to actually engage that question, this, this sort of theme that we're doing this summer. And um, I realized we've talked about that at least one time since I've been here, but it was actually before the pandemic. We haven't talked about it since then, so it's been a while. And so there might be a number of folks here now that haven't you know, been around when we talked about this. Uh, so it's a good time to talk about it. Another reason is that it's, it's timely because of the news. Um, you might have uh, heard uh, that the Southern Baptist Convention just had a kind of a big to-do about this. They had their denominational gathering about two weeks ago, and this topic was a big part of their denominational gathering because um, there's a large Southern Baptist church called Saddleback, and the pastor that was at Saddleback, his name is Rick Warren, and he wrote the book, The Purpose Driven Life, which is a pretty popular book that you may have heard of. And back in 2021, Rick Warren ordained three women as pastors in his church, and when the Southern Baptist um, convention sort of heard about that. They got pretty upset, and back in February, they dismissed um, Saddleback and four other churches from the Southern Baptist Convention for having women as pastors in their churches. Saddleback is the second largest Southern Baptist church in the United States. They have about 30,000 people a week there. So when they dismiss you know, that church, they're dismissing 30,000 people from the denomination as well. It's a pretty big, pretty big move. Uh, so two weeks ago, they had their denominational gathering. Rick Warren and one of the other pastors from the churches that got dismissed came to the convention to um, ask them to reconsider their decision. And the Southern Baptist Convention voted nine to one to seal their expulsion. Uh, so they're gone. Um, that's the Southern Baptist Convention, though. And so some of you will know, and hope, hopefully the majority of you will know, we are not part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Kanoi is not a Baptist church. On our sign out front, even though it's temporary, uh, it says Kanoi BIC Church. The BIC stands for Brethren in Christ. Our denomination is the Brethren in Christ, not Baptist. What does the Brethren in Christ think about women as pastors or women in leadership? The Brethren in Christ back in 1982 made the decision that women were allowed to be pastors. Women were allowed to be in all levels of ministry leadership. In 1992, at our denominational gathering, we reaffirmed that position. In 2017, we put out a written statement that once again reaffirmed that decision. And a quote from the written statement, the Brethren in Christ fully affirms women in ministry leadership at all levels of church life. So for more than 40 years, we have held the position that hasn't always been popular, but 
has made room at the table for our sisters in Christ to share their giftedness. And so this morning, what I wanna do, what I endeavor to do is fairly simple, is I wanna show you three pieces of scripture that are um, usually pointed to uh, or used in some way, shape, or form to say why women shouldn't be in leadership um, and just show you why that's not the case. So this isn't an exhaustive sermon. Um, if we wanted to do sort of a deep dive as to all of the things, then we'd have to do like a class or a sermon series or something like that. Um, I'm not gonna try and do that this morning. What I am gonna try and do is just give you a taste. And the way that this sort of fits in our series is, is this. The thing that I wanna tackle is the topic, but also this idea. I'm sure you've heard it said, just look at a plain reading of the text. Anybody ever heard somebody say, just look at a plain reading of the text? Come on, a plain reading of the text will tell you all you need to know. Just look at the plain English reading of the text. I've heard so many people say that. I've heard so many people uh, say that in a sermon. And the problem with that is, Jesus didn't speak English. Did you guys know that? Okay. How many of you brought an English Bible with you? Come on, let's be honest. All right. Did you know that the Bibles in the chairs in front of you are English? Okay. Now, here's the honest truth. That English Bible has been translated from another language. Okay? And anytime we translate from another language, we've interpreted. Okay? And that's a hard thing for people to understand. And more than it's hard for people to understand, it's hard for them to admit. As soon as we've translated, we've interpreted. We've decided that a certain word means a certain thing. And we've chosen to represent this Greek word with this English word rather than this English word. Or this Hebrew word with this English word rather than this English word. Are you with me? That's called interpretation. Okay, when you make a choice between two different English words, you're making a, ch a choice of interpretation. And so for example, there are folks out there that would say, um, the King James Version is the only version. The King James Version is the right version. You can't use any version but the King James, right? Now, what people don't often realize is King James was a real person, okay? That's not just the name of a translation of a Bible. King James is a real person who really commissioned people to take the current, the Bible of the day and make a translation of it. And he wanted it translated because he wanted it translated in a new way. He wanted it translated so that it would emphasize authority, monarchy, it would emphasize dominion and succession. Why those things? Because he was king. And if you could emphasize those things in the translation, it made it that much easier for the king to stay the king. It made it that much easier for the king to say, don't you see how scripture supports the king? Don't you see how scripture supports the monarchy? Don't you see how scripture supports succession? And then my kids should be the next 
king, he commissioned that translation to be translated in a certain way, okay? Now, that's not me trying to say, get rid of your King James Bible. I'm just telling you, choices were made for that to be translated in a certain way. Um, So just because something is really old, the King James Version is a very old translation, doesn't mean that it's better. Or just because something's very new doesn't mean it's better. The ESV, the English Standard Version, that is a very new translation. That was done in 2001. The main um, folks who did that were John Piper and Wayne Grudem. And you may not know Wayne Grudem's name, but you probably know John Piper's name. He's fairly well known in the, in the church world. And that was touted as like the best translation out there, the most true translation out there. But one of the things you have to know is that their background is anti-women in ministry. And so the choices that they made about translating scripture were choices to make it easier to deny equality for women and deny women a seat at the table in leadership positions. So they made very specific choices in their translation of words and passages that made it seem like women should come under authority. So when you pick up a translation or you go buy a new Bible, you should know these things. Know what the translation is and know what the background of the translation is. I mean, there's also other things too, like your Bible that you have might have a theme. You know, like my Bible is absent a theme, but there are lots of Bibles out there that have themes. I used to have a student Bible, which meant that the Bible was geared towards students. Or maybe there's a Bible out there that's geared toward men. And so there's certain things that are very emphasized toward men, or it's very emphasized towards women, or it could be emphasized towards uh, America, or something like that, right? There's themes to certain Bibles. And so know that, because then there's certain things that are emphasized that are going to stick out in a different way to you. So be aware of that. Bibles are produced by um, publishing companies. And so you can usually look at the binder of your Bible, find a publishing company. This one's Zondervan. I mean, every publishing company has a reason that they do certain things. So just being aware of those things. So when somebody says, just look at the plain English reading, it's not that simple. It's just not. Does that mean you can't go home and just read your English Bible? No, that's not what I'm saying. And that's not what you should walk away with today. Here is what I am saying. We need to be in church. We need to be a part of communities that we can trust. We need to not just, look, we live in a world where we are more intent on consuming than we are cultivating community. That's just the honest truth. It's always easier for us to put on a podcast, log in online, or put on the TV channel where there's church. And then we, we check off the box that say, I did my church duty, okay? Rather than take the time to actually build community somewhere. Build community with people that you can get to know, build a relationship with, and trust. Get to know the teacher who's teaching you so that you can trust that person too. That way you can learn as to whether or not you can trust the words coming out of that man or woman's mouth. Because you can't trust everybody. That's just the honest truth. 
And when you put on the TV channel of whatever church is your favorite, maybe you're gonna get the most passionate, fiery speaker that's out there, but you might not be getting the most sound teaching that's out there. And that is the honest truth. So if you're into really good speaking, cool. But if you're into sound biblical teaching and good doctrine, well, that's a different thing to look for. So cultivate community, learn to trust the people you're with, and learn to get to know the teacher that you're sitting under so you can figure out if you can trust them. One of the things that I have found to value so much is like the Sunday school class we're doing right now is getting to sit in a room with people and talk. And be like, hey, how, let's, let's look at this passage, let's look at this verse. How has this verse played out in your life? Like, how have you heard this used? What do you think it means? Those are great conversations to have. Is any one of us going, it means this, and it doesn't mean this? No, we're just talking about our experience, and it's wonderful. We're getting to know each other. We're sharing life. That is so valuable. We're building trust and building relationship. That is what this place should be about. That is how we move forward, okay? That's how we get comfortable with one another. That's what this should be about. That is how we learn how to read scripture and we read it well, okay? Be aware of folks who say, just do a plain reading of the text and I'm gonna show you why. Here's the first one. This is, this is Genesis. So if you wanna open your Bibles, go ahead. It's Genesis chapter two, verse 18. And um, it's, this is part of it. The full verse says this. It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Okay? I wrote the second sentence. And I put the full verse up on the screen. So um, in all of these things, in case you hate my handwriting, it's on the screen as well. Um, but here's, here's the thing. So we have this story, right, where God is making the world and he's created mankind. And he has created man. And he says, man, you know, I've created all this stuff, plants, animals, man, and uh, all the animals have each other, but man doesn't have anything that's like man. There's none of the animals that quite seem compatible with man. So, it's just not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Well, this is one of those pieces of scripture that it gets used all the time for people to go, look, see, it's right here at the very beginning, at the outset of creation. I will make a helper suitable for man. So this is the word, right? This is the one that we, that we use. And so in our society, in our society for the last 75 years, what is a helper? It's like a, it's like a personal assistant. It's like, it's like the one that... Uh, vacuums for us and washes the dishes for us, right? Like, come on. Adam needs somebody to vacuum the Garden of Eden and wash the dishes, right? None of the animals will do it. There's only a couple monkeys with opposable thumbs and they didn't want the job. So God was like, I'll make Eve, okay? Right, that's, that's essentially the way we present it, right? Nobody wanted the job and so I'll make a helper suitable for Adam. And so what we do is we present this whole thing. We're like, God's the ultimate authority, then there's man, and then woman is under that, okay? That's sort of the way it's presented so much of the time. 
And, and, and we use the creation story and this idea of helper in order to, to do that. And we say, look, it's plain. Plain English tells you, helper. This word helper is this word. I'm standing in front of it. It's the word azer. Can you say azer? Azer. All right. This word is used 21 times in the very beginning of the Bible. It's a Hebrew word. Two times we translate it as, uh, as helper, okay? Or, I mean, as helper or, uh, or uh, woman, right? It's woman or, or helper. But then four times, is it four times? Let me make sure I get my, let me get my numbers right so I don't say the wrong thing here because I don't want to tell you the wrong thing. Three, see, I told you the wrong thing. Three times the word is used. For military support, 16 times it refers to as God, okay? Azer means helper. Two times it is used to refer to a woman. Three times it is used to refer to military support when the the nation of Israel needs military help and they call on their neighbors as Azer, military help. 16 times it is referred to as when God helps the nation of Israel. Okay? Now, when we do a plain English reading, we make it so that woman is under man. She's a helper. She's washing the dishes and she's vacuuming the Garden of Eden. But tell me, when we're calling on military support, it's not under. Israel's not looking for the military support to be under them. They're not lower than. They are helping Israel. When God is helping Israel, we certainly are not thinking of God as lower than Israel. No way. This is kept this way simply for one reason, to make sure that we can use this as an argument to keep women in their proper place. There is no reason for us to ever think that azer means something that keeps women lower than men. This is used in every way as something that refers to something that is at least equal, if not greater than. Here's the other thing that's kind of neat when you think about it. If you think about the creation story, God creates. And every time he creates, he says his creation is what? Okay. Except in this verse, he goes, he's made man, and he goes, oh, it's not good for man to be alone, right? It's not good. So how does he rectify the not good problem? He makes woman. Not as an afterthought, not as, not as a slave, not as a 
vacuum cleaner or a dishwasher. He makes her as the solution to the not good condition that man is in. She fixes the problem of not good for man. It's not good. That's the condition man is in. He's alone. He has no partner. He has no support. And to fix that, she makes, he makes man. He, he makes woman. That is a really cool thing. Again, not as an afterthought. This, using this verse as a way to keep women down is sad. And it is not the right way to read this. Now, this one. This is in Galatians. So you'd have to switch to uh, the New Testament. Galatians 3.28. This is not something that is usually used to keep women out of ministry. This is a verse that's commonly used to make the argument for women to be in ministry. But, but the reason I, I use this this morning is because the first thing that is often said when you bring this up, by the way, it says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Is the accusation gets made, hey, don't strip away gender. Because especially when you first start here and you're talking about the Garden of Eden, you're like, hey, there are roles, and there's an importance in the roles that men have and women have. God designed them differently, and so there are things that women are good at. There's things that men are good at. And so when you start using you know, this verse to talk about women in ministry, and you say things like there's no male and female, you're stripping away gender, and we don't want to do that. We want to we remember that there are things that are good for men, and there are things that are good for women. And that's one that I want to just speak to for a moment because that, again, is a silly thing that we hear um, because it's, it's a mistake for us to read it that way. Again, again, again Galatians 3.28. This is not a stripping of gender away so that you can have equality. There's some consistency that we have to see. You, you'll see neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, okay? So consistency. But then suddenly when you get to the male-female thing, it changes. Instead of it saying neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Greek, you would expect there would be neither male nor female. Paul changes the way he's talking. He says there is no male and female. So he changes his verbiage. And so the question has to become, why does he change? And the reason is, is because he's not stripping away gender identity, and he's not saying, let's scrap the jobs or the good things that one gender might be good at versus another. He's actually thinking back to the story of Genesis. Because if you go back to the story of Genesis, in Genesis chapter one, he says, um, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, male and female, he created them. It's a quotation. He's referring back to the, the Genesis story. That's why he says there is no male and female. So he's making a statement about something. He's connecting, he's quoting, he's creating, he's connecting the creation story for a reason. This isn't about, again, stripping away identity. Paul is trying to make a point it's not about stripping away roles from my eraser app. 
what you'll notice is in Paul's letters throughout the New Testament, Paul addresses various groups of people. And he addresses Jews and Greeks. He addresses slaves and free people. He has letters to both of these groups. He addresses males and females, husbands and wives. He addresses all of them. And what he's trying to say is that in Christ Jesus, these things are boundaries. In Christ Jesus, the boundaries are gone. The boundaries are gone. He's not saying these roles are gone. It's not suddenly that there are no Jews and there are no Greeks. He didn't say that suddenly there are no slaves and there are no free men. If you notice, he has letters addressed to slave owners about slaves. He doesn't say, go free your slaves. He says, let Christ Jesus rule in your hearts and be the very best slaves you can be, be the very best slave owners you can be. Treat your slaves differently and, and be uh, kind of slaves that your slave owners are like, blown, your mind is blown by how you're acting, right? He, he doesn't deny these things. He doesn't scrap these things. He doesn't scrap the boundaries. He's saying, those boundaries don't matter because you are all one in Christ Jesus. This identity supersedes all those identities, okay? And so what he's trying to say is let's remember this thing over everything else. We're not scrapping identity. We're not getting rid of gender. We are looking at it and going, the boundaries no longer matter. Those boundaries are less important than our identity in Christ Jesus. Our identity in Christ Jesus is everything. That is, and, and here's the thing. If you can get that here, I don't know if I made that more convoluted or if I made that clear or not. If you can get that here, this will unlock all of Paul's letters. That is his point in everything he writes. Paul's point in all of his letters is that your identity in Christ supersedes everything else. Everything. So when he writes the Corinthians and they're dealing with all kinds of insane stuff that you would not believe in the church. Like things going on in the church that you would be like, that belongs on HBO, right? Like, he's like, look, your identity in Christ Jesus supersedes all of that stuff. When he writes to the Romans and he's talking about, in Sunday school, we were talking about government and authority and all that kind of stuff. When he writes to them and he talks about those things, he's like, your identity in Christ supersedes all that stuff, all right? Make your identity in Christ the thing that matters more than anything. And if that's the case, then you can give your submission to the government, and it shouldn't bother you. Like, this is the thing that unlocks all of Paul's letters, if you can understand. The boundaries no longer matter. He's not saying that there is no male and female. He's not saying there is no slave and free person, or there's no Jew and Greek. The boundaries that once divided you no longer divide you, because you are one in Christ Jesus. That's a lesson that we could all learn today, because we constantly let ourselves be divided by all sorts of arbitrary boundaries, don't we? And instead, we could go, hey, aren't we all one in Christ Jesus? Oh yeah, we are, okay. Last one, this is, this is sort of my favorite one. And, and this is the one that, you know, so Rick Warren um, from Saddleback, he, he put out a public apology to women. And his, his public apology, he said, 
Uh, I will apologize for being in ministry for 53 years and never doing my own research on the topic of women in ministry. Uh, and he said, I quote, I wasted four years of Greek in college and seminary when I finally did my proper due diligence, laying aside 50 years of bias. I was shocked, chagrined, and embarrassed. So many hermeneutical rules were being violated, including never build a doctrine on a single word that is used only once in scripture. There's nothing to compare it to. Do your own study in ancient Greek and you'll be shocked too. What's he talking about? He's talking about this verse right here. Um, this is from Second Timothy, or excuse me, First Timothy, chapter two, verse twelve. By the way, if you want to go check it out, a um, couple of things. Again, we're talking about a plain reading in English, so this is the word we get stuck on because um, we know there are women that teach. So this is not a question of can a woman teach or not. We know there are women that talk in the Bible, so there's not a question of whether women are allowed to talk or not, right? This really comes down to this. It's a question of, can a woman have authority over a man? Okay? Everything hinges on this component. In your Bible, if you open it up to 1 Timothy chapter 2, you'll see there's a heading that says, Instructions for Worship, which is really interesting, because if you were to ignore that heading and just read, you might be surprised to you probably would never come to the conclusion that this is about worship at all. You would come to the, not come to the conclusion that this has anything to do with the church. You'd probably be more apt to come to the conclusion that this has to do with men, women, husbands, wives. But there's nothing in there that mentions a worship service. There's nothing in there that mentions a church service or anything like that. So the fact that there's a heading that says instructions for worship, again, it's a bit surprising, but it's put in there by the um, publisher of your Bible. So... Um, it's just interesting. But let's just say it does apply to a church service. Again, it's this word that people get stuck on. What does the word authority mean? There is a word for authority in Greek, and it's this word. Um, let me just make some space. And um, it's, it's exactly what you would probably think the word authority means. Um, it's got to do with leadership, uh, jurisdiction. Um, it's the word you would use to disqualify somebody from a position of leadership. It's, it is the perfect word for authority. And it is absolutely not the word that's used there. That is the word that Paul uses in other places, though. So one thing we know is Paul knows this word. Paul uses this word to describe authority, and Paul doesn't use this word here. Weird, right? Yep, weird. That's what we all think. Here's the word. That Paul uses there. Authentale. It's a very different word. Authenteo is a word that means to dominate and to become a complete master. Uh, it means to usurp, uh, to usurp authority, to kill with your bare hands. 
Um, it's a word that is used only one place in the entire Bible, right here. It doesn't show up anywhere else, one time. So Paul knows the word for authority. He uses the word for authority other places in the Bible, but Paul uses often teo here. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume often teo over a man, she must remain quiet. And often teo is used only one time in the Bible, right there, and when we look to other historical writings outside of the Bible to help us compare and contrast as to what this word means, we know that this word means things like usurping authority, killing with your bare hands. What we see consistently is that anytime this word is used in ancient writings, somebody is hurt or killed, physically maimed, hurt, or killed. If you and I were having a conversation or writing letters back and forth in ancient Greek, and we were talking about Cain and Abel, and I was trying to describe to you what Cain did to Abel, this is the word that would be, we would use, okay? Not this word, this word, right? So, when Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authentio over a man, is he saying authority or is he saying something very different? That's what it comes down to, and that's why when somebody says, well, just do a plain reading, a plain English reading, that's where this becomes much harder, and that's why we have to be involved in communities we can trust, with people we can trust, with teachers we can trust, because it's not so simple as to say, let's just do a plain reading of Scripture, because it is quite easy for a translation to put a word in that is very specifically being used to make this look like it says something when it says something very, very different. Here's what I do know. What I do know is I have two daughters and do I hope that they will grow up to be Jesus followers? Yeah, I really do. Do I hope that they will grow up in this denomination? Yeah. Will either of them ever want to go into ministry? I don't know. But if they want to, by golly, they are going to get 100% support from me to do so. And they are never going to sit under pastoral authority that tells them otherwise. I also will tell you this. Both my sons and my daughters will grow up understanding that there is a prohibition for men and women. It is never, ever appropriate for men or women to often tail anybody, right? If often tail means to usurp authority, to malign, to um, kill somebody with your bare hands, that isn't appropriate for a woman to do to a man or a man to do to a woman or a man to do to a man or a woman to do to a woman, ever. All my kids are going to grow up learning that often tail is not appropriate, period. Okay? What Paul is saying here is not this. That is the clear thing. And that is why we need to make sure that we are not just doing a plain reading of Scripture and we're involved in communities where we are a part of the community and we're not just consuming teaching without knowing where it's coming from and being able to trust the source. Um, 
the Brethren in Christ denomination supports women at all leaders of levelship. <laughs> oh, man. All levels of leadership. <laughs> I did that. That was nice, wasn't it? Just put all those words together. At all levels of leadership. It's something that I care a lot about. It's something that I feel passionate about. And I'm very proud that we're a denomination that has said that that's important to us. I think there's a lot of room to continue fleshing that out. And there's a lot more than just like these three things to talk through. There's other verses in the Bible. There's other stories in the Bible. But the great thing is, is that there are so many great stories of women who sat under, with Jesus, under Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who were the first evangelists to tell the good news about Jesus rising as, as well. I mean, there were women disciples. There's so many wonderful, wonderful stories that we can tell to our daughters, to young mothers, to new people who are coming into our church who have been told their entire life that there is no room for women to be involved in ministry to help right that wrong. Because there is a generation of people or multiple generations of people who have been told there is no room for you to use your gifts simply because you are a woman. And I am proud to say, I believe that is absolutely 100% false. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together. Thank you.